Bienvenidos and welcome to the next installment of Lead Media Programming from Studio 54, campus of California State University, San Bernardino, the digital media platform for inspired educators, leaders, and community activists and advocates taking our message directly to the people, to the gente. Thank you for sharing our common interests in the analysis, discussion, critique, dissemination, and commitment to the educational issues that impact Latinos. I'm your host, Dr. Enrique Murillo Jr., and this episode is a syndicated replay from season five of the LEAD Summit 2014. The theme that year was Latino male crisis in the educational pipeline, and we found it obligatory that we always maintain a historic perspective. This keynote address by Dr. Jose Angel Gutierrez was entitled Chicano Rights Movements Then and Now. Jose Angel Gutierrez, one of our lead padrinos, is a pivotal figure and one of the iconic founding fathers of the Chicano Rights Movement. He has spent a lifetime organizing and fighting for educational equity and liberation. Continue and enjoy the full value and complexity of this episode. We extend our appreciation to all our lead sponsors and partners, planners, volunteers, speakers, panelists, production team, affiliates, and all our town hall chapters. We commend them all for lifting their voice and uplifting the plight of Latinos in education. Thank you. Gracias. Tlazo Camate. They asked us to do. Okay, I'd like now to share how honored I am, really, um, because this keynote address is our capstone presentation. So we save, the, we save it for the end. And, um, and so this is a very exciting and, and special occasion for us. We had been working out, um, working on this address maybe for a couple of years. We've been corresponding, uh, going back and forth. And truly the attendance of our special keynote speaker um, is only made possible uh, because we were uh, fortunate that we, we had some funding provided by the Intellectual Life and Visiting Scholars Committee here at CSUSB Academic Programs. Before we uh, introduce our folks up here, uh, please direct your attention to the big screen. Just days after the grand opening of Hemisphere, Chicano high school students, like their Los Angeles counterparts, staged walkouts, first in San Antonio, then in 39 towns across Texas. Eventually, they spread to nearly 100 high schools in 10 states. The mastermind behind much of this activism was Jose Angel Gutierrez, son of a local doctor and a graduate student in political science from a small town southwest of San Antonio called Crystal City. Crystal City, where I grew up, was simply like an old colonial plantation. It was a, a segregated town. Anglos had paved streets, sidewalks, lights. We had none of that. Polio was rampant, tuberculosis was rampant. Everything around you was just simply disheartening. Like many South Texas towns, Crystal City had been shaped by racial violence, much of it perpetrated by the Texas Rangers, a 150-year-old autonomous police force with a history of intimidating, even killing Mexicans. As a young boy, Gutierrez often witnessed the aftermath of this brutality. My father's medical practice was in our home, and it would, it would not be unusual for us at night, middle of the night, to hear a thump you know, on the door and, and there's a body. They were been pistol whipped or they had been beaten by the police. The police department at the time was just about 100% Anglo and they pretty much enforced you know, whatever uh, the ruling class needed to have enforced. Gutierrez blamed gringos, the Anglo authorities in South Texas, for keeping Mexican-Americans down he was determined to help Chicanos gain political power. We recognize that the barriers to our integrating into the society and, and to uplifting ourselves is the gringo. The gringo who puts the barriers, who makes us you know, drop out of school, who keeps us in bad health, who doesn't pay us good wages, who prohibits our unions, and so on and so on and so on. So until we get rid of those elements, we're not going to progress. We're not going to be free. So yes, the gringo must go. 
this press conference became known as uh, the Kill the Gringo press conference because that's the way the newspapers portrayed it. But what Jose Angel Gutierrez meant was kill the gringo supremacy, you know, not the individual, but the system. In a television interview, Henry B. Gonzalez denounced Chicano activists like Gutierrez and what he called their campaign of hate. I picture my own role as having a responsibility to smoke out and to expose these false and mistaken voices of hatred. I feel that I fought against those in the majority who were preaching the same hatred 12 years ago in a different context, that I have the same responsibility to expose it among the minority, even if it is a minority from which I emerged. Henry B. Gonzalez, in my estimation, had a view of America that bought into the melting pot scenario, and uh, our movement said, no, we, we reject that. We don't have to give up our language, we don't have to give up our culture, the extended family, uh, all those things that make us who we are. We're not going to erase those just to buy into this, to your notion of what it is to be an American. Back in his hometown of Crystal City, Gutierrez organized yet another high school walkout. After eight long weeks, the students won their demands. But that was not enough for Gutierrez. In the school walkout, you have to go back the next day once you settle to the same teacher, the same principal, the same superintendent, the same school board. Well, the only way to change it is to have a, a political revolution electorally, vote them out of office so that then you can hire the correct principal and superintendent and so on. If we can take over you know, a school and be successful and get what the students and their parents want, why can't we just become a county commissioner? Why can't we become the sheriff? Why don't we become the county judge? So we formed a political party. They called their new party La Raza Unida, the United People. Gutierrez spent weeks going door to door, encouraging Mexican-Americans, who made up 80% of the population, to run candidates in the upcoming elections. When you saw Jose Angel Gutierrez walk into a Crystal City barrio, he knew how to talk to people. He could speak to our grandmothers, he could speak to our mother, to our uncle, to our father, and he could articulate their concerns. He was very committed to the poor, to the working class. Uh, he understood their needs. He knew how to organize people. Now we were going beyond high school walkouts. Now we're really going to take on the system here. We fielded 16 candidates in three counties and won 15, school boards and city council. The elections in April of 1970 saw an unprecedented victory for Chicanos. Gutierrez was elected county judge, and La Raza Unida now controlled not only the school board, but city and county government as well. Before you knew it, we had Chicano teachers and principals and superintendents. I mean, this was just incredible. You know, you walked into the, the county courthouse and you would smell chorizo. <laughs> and we'd be speaking in Spanish in the courtroom, you know, and tell the Anglo lawyer, you need an interpreter. And of course, the Anglo Texans are besides themselves. They're thinking that this is a real revolution, except that all that's happening is that Mexican Americans are exercising their political will. La Raza Unida would grow into a national party, running candidates from California to Michigan as Chicanos began flexing their political muscle. And in the largest demonstration of Chicano solidarity ever seen in the U.S., on the morning of August 29, 1970, over 30,000 took to the streets of East Los Angeles, demanding an end to the war in Vietnam. The war was really becoming such a heavy presence in our lives that no one could ignore it. At that time, we were about 60% of, of the population uh, in the country and 20% of the casualties in Vietnam. I recall there were miles of people. I'd like to now turn this over to Mary Valdemar, 
Mary is vice president of the Latino Faculty, Staff, and Administrators Association for the San Bernardino Community College District and is co-founder, core team, and volunteer support staff for Chica. They were out there. There you go. <laughs> Chica stands for Chicano Indigenous Community for Culturally Conscious Advocacy and Action. I stop. Mary? Thank you very much. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Jose Angel Gutierrez. And um, he's a, pivot, a pivotal figure and one of the iconic founding fathers of the Chicano rights movement, as you've seen in that video there. He's an attorney that hails from Dallas, Texas, and a professor of political science at the University of Texas at Arlington. He's also founder of the Center for Mexican American Studies there. Dr. Gutierrez, along with Cesar Chavez, Reyes Lopez, Tierina, and Corky Gonzalez, um, stands out as among the most important and influential leaders of the Chicano movement in the late 1960s and 1970s. He was founding member of the Mexican-American youth organization, Mayo, in 1967, one of the first student activist groups of the Chicano movement and founding member and past president of the political third party, La Raza Unida Party, which left its mark on the political scene challenging Democratic and Republican parties alike to court the ignored Mexican-American and Latino voter. Dr. Quiteras was one of many activists working to change public education on a local level in the 1960s and 70s. Born in Crystal City, Texas, educated in local schools, he's what I'd call homegrown. Quiteras mobilized the community to demand equal treatment for Chicano students. He was lead organizer of the Winter Garden Project, the project which led to the now famous walkout of 1969. Dr. Gutierrez has been organizer, founder, and co-founder of several other organizations, such as the Mexican American Unity Council, um, Suidanos Unidos, Obreros Unidos Independientes, um, Oregon Council for Hispanic Advancement, Northwest Voter Registration and Education Project, and Grupo de Apoyo para Inmigrantes Latino Americanos. He has been the subject of many articles and film documentaries, including the PBS video series Chicano, the Mexican-American struggle for civil rights and is mentioned in many Chicano history and political science books. He was also featured as an innovator in the PBS document, documentary series, School, the Story of American Public Education. Most recently, Dr. Quiteres was featured in a segment of Prejudice and Pride, the Chicano movement, which was part of a PBS series, Latino Americans. Please join me in welcoming our keynote speaker, and a visionary and incredible inspiration to myself and many other new Chicano leaders, Jose Angel Gutierrez. Let's, let's get busy because we don't have a lot of time. <laughs> uh, I, I feel like a baseball player. Uh, the fourth person up the bat is usually the cleanup batter. You're supposed to hit a grand slam home run and bring all the runs in because it's, it's about over. And uh, here we're going to be off the air uh, by, by five. And so that leaves uh, about 20 minutes here to cover 60 years. <laughs> Of, of, of what happened then and what is happening now. So I'm going to reverse what I was going to do and just give you part one. And since you're coming to San Antonio, I expect to deliver part two. <laughs> because I, I will not be made to go in a hurry. <laughs> All right. I, I know that I'm in California, and I know that you have a favorite uh, son, uh, that comes out here, or maybe started here, Bill Maher, uh, and, and he's on TV, and he's funny, and he's on our side, you know, progressive. Yet he's never had a Chicano or a Chicana on the show, but that's okay. He does have a little segment where he talks about new rules. Well, I want to start by telling you about Gutierrez's 
old rules. Because I always get in trouble when I address a group uh, and there's taping done and then somebody gets a piece and says, look at what he said now. Let me start off with rule number one. Gutierrez, old rule number one. I am a Chicano. That doesn't mean you have to be, but let me tell you what it does mean. That when I espouse and I say that I am pro-Chicano, that does not make me anti-white. That does not make me anti-black, and it doesn't make me anti-Latino. I'm fighting for our interests, for our vision, and for self-determination for people like me. The others can carry on their fight. I'm not here to fight for them. Rule number two, he who defines wins. Now they call it framing. So I'm going to tell it to you from the Chicano perspective of what we thought we were doing and why we were doing what we did. Let me start off with the fact that we were a generation comprised basically of second and third generation immigrant children. Now, I know some of you are sitting there uh, saying, well, I'm second generation, I'm third generation, but I don't call myself Chicano. All right, let's go back with a little history. The Treaty of Velasco ended the, the Anglo Rebellion, the White Rebellion in Texas, led by a bunch of illegal aliens from Tennessee, Kentucky, Georgia, and other places. They broke their rules, they broke their promises, they told they would be given some land if they would be loyal to Mexico, not bring slaves, and be Catholic. And they lied to every, three, one of, every one of those three items. So that insurrection ended up in the loss of Texas. The Treaty of Velasco is what ended that, signed. While Santa Ana was hostage, he was made to sign that treaty and a letter issuing an order to his commanders to leave the territory, which they did. Had they not done so, they probably would have been able to overcome the small number uh, of revolutionaries who were there at the time in San Jacinto, but that didn't happen. A few years later, 1846, the United States invaded Mexico again. And this time, by 1848, took half of that territory. That ended with another treaty, the one of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Now, the Mexicans who were not killed during those times and survived then faced a period, a prolonged period of Mexican removal, pushing us out of our areas. Very few stayed, very few stayed, about 88,000. And it wasn't until the outbreak of the Mexican Revolution, 1910 to 1930, by the time it got normalized, that about a million Mexicans crossed over into what then became the United States, back into our homeland. That's why I said that my generation, going back to that time, was the second and third generation. Now that's important to know because by that time, many of us were beginning to finish school. And the school that we were made to attend, as you've heard, was a school that prohibited you speak Spanish, took you about four years to get out of the early grades. You started off with Cero Bola, that was a grade. And then you went to Primero Bajo, and then you were promoted to Primero Alto, and then Segundo Bajo, and Segundo Alto. By that time, you had a mustache and the underarm stank. And we were in segregated communities and segregated schools, as you saw some of the streets. I attended a school uh, that was called Airport Junior High. Airport Junior High was a former Japanese concentration camp. Earlier, another speaker referred to that as a detention camp or relocation center. They were concentration camps. And that's where we went to school, the Mexicanos did. So, we learned that we were a little different than the regular schools, and we learned that what was happening in our school system was a, an attempt to try to make Anglos out of all of us. 
Angela Valenzuela, in her book, Subtractive Learning, says, as some other speakers have mentioned, I think it was Mr. Tejo, we arrive whole at the school when we are in pre-kinder. And immediately, the subtracting begins. Taking away our language, taking away our values and our customs and our heritage, and making liars out of our parents. Because the minute they tell you, don't speak Spanish, that's a bad language, what do you think is spoken at home? And so what happens with the other kids that are there? I remember like my peers, that still goes on today. The teacher asks a question and you know, you're the chicanito that's got the answer, you raise your hand, and your own racita says, que te crees cabrón, muy gabacho. You think you're smarter than BSA? So we have a dumbed down syndrome. And so we kind of keep quiet, can't answer. And what happens is that when you go home, you're Mexican. You have to be. That's what your parents demand. When you're in school, you got to be an Anglo. And when that bell rings and you step outside and you walk down those unpaved streets, you're Chicano. Three people in one. And you learn early how to be and wear those hats instantly so we can survive in those worlds. That's kind of what I was telling you about second and third generation. When we would be taken home to the ancestral Mexico to visit the parientes, we were, I was taken to Torreón, and I was taken to uh, Guerrero, and I was taken to, to Monterrey, and I became the gringuito. My Mexican relatives would call me, I agavachado, would call me, I gringuito, criticize me for my, my Spanglish, my Chicano talk, uh, and that I, I liked Elvis Presley and the Everly Brothers, and, <laughs> and I wore blue jeans. <laughs> now, if the Anglos don't like you, and your own Mexicans don't like you, we opted for the only other course. We loved ourselves. And we began an attitude that said, I'm Chicano. This is who I am. You don't like it, you got a problem. Ike. When we were confronted with that racism about, well, little kid or Jose, if you don't like it here, why don't you go back to Mexico? Out of our mouth instantly was, pendejo, we are in Mexico. <laughs> we were reading the same books they were reading. It's there. Shamelessly, it's there. But we don't internalize that as a lost land. So our generation became an activist generation. The first group to say, we don't particularly want to assimilate. We don't want to become Anglos. There's nothing wrong with us to begin with. There's no subtraction needed here. I'm whole. And I usually say that my mother told me that I was born right. I believed it. And my mother, like your mother, doesn't lie about any of us. So why do we have to face this contradiction that somehow we're deficient when we enter the public school? when the history that's written is distorted, that we become the villains and the bad people. So we began searching for answers and couldn't find any, so we created space for and in pursuit of that dignity and that respect. Our generation calls leadership renewal, what you see beginning today. The generation before wanted to assimilate, they thought that the answer would be becoming Anglo-like speaking English, enunciating carefully, requiring citizenship to join LULAC and the American GI Forum and anything else, you have to be a citizen and speak English. To this day, it's in those constitutions. The majority of us couldn't speak Spanish, I mean English correctly, and good number of us, like my parents and my grandmother, they were not citizens. So we were deliberately cutting off our, our legs and trying to run a relay and a marathon competing in the American system. Not until 1960, with the creation of PASO and in California, MAPA, the precursor to the community services organization, that somebody, a generation of Mexicanos, started saying, you know what? Unlike what my grandmother says or my father says, we ain't going back to Mexico. That's what they always said. They were going to go back to Mexico mañana, and they never did. <laughs> you hear that from immigrants today. 
They're going to go back to Vietnam. They want to go back to Cuba. They want to go back to, to, to Honduras. They want to go back to Mexico. And they don't do that. So that generation, ours included, began to realize we're here. And second radical thought, second Gutierrez old rule. This is our homeland. We are the hosts. Everybody else is a guest. So don't accept any other kind of treatment. And unlike what another person presented and said, I think it is important to say to people, like we did then, especially today, how you treat us today, we will treat you like that tomorrow. That should get them to thinking about how their policies and the effect of those policies reflect on us and our generations. Now, at my time, also in terms of leadership change and leadership renewal, youth like myself stepped forward and said, you know, we, we want to have a say. This is the era of the poll tax. This is when you were not a man until you were 21 and couldn't speak. Women had no rights whatsoever. This is when we stepped forward. This is when women said, you know, we're tired of this also. We want to have a right. So women started being assertive and aggressive as well. And the farm workers said, you know, we're tired of you people going to San Antonio or Denver or L.A. and having a meeting in a big hotel that we can't afford and requiring us to speak English and to be citizens. So the farm worker movement, the poor people started organizing. So the poor people, the women and the youth became the leadership of that generation at that particular time coinciding with the voting power that MAPA and PASO were creating at, at those moments with those presidential elections. Now, we didn't forget the power of the vote. We didn't quite understand that it wasn't just important to vote for a president. And we still haven't learned this lesson very well. We have a black-white uh, hybrid president. In Dallas, they call him the black Anglo-Saxon president. And among immigrants, they call him the, the worst person ever because he's well over deporting two million of our people. Now, what we did not learn then, and we still haven't learned completely today, is that we need a transition team. We need to be involved from the campaign get-go of who is going to be in that White House, who is going to be in those positions. We need to demand those kinds of places so that we can impact the policy once they take over as presidents. We haven't done that. And that was the fault and the problem that MAPA and PASO faced in 1960. But those of us watching, those of us who were not 21 years of age yet in 60, said when it's our turn, we will change all this. So we started arguing and protesting for the elimination of the poll tax, lowering the voting age, and of course we, we were able to obtain that. Now in all these walkouts, what you saw here at the beginning of the clip, that was Gutierrez's old rule. If you're going to have a party and I'm not invited, it ain't going to be a very good party for you. You can't just make us your piñata. You can't just beat us like a piñata and expect us not to want some of the benefits from that piñata. What do I mean by this? This, in all these walkouts, there was always some exclusionary rule. And the one featured here by Crystal City that said you couldn't be a homecoming queen candidate unless your parents, plural, had graduated from Crystal City High School. That is the old grandfather clause revisited. We said, no, you're not going to crown anybody on that football field because we're all going to be on that football field. Well, they did crown the homecoming queen, but in a shack packing shed of spinach <laughs> elsewhere. There was no homecoming queen at that time. When the University of Texas said, we don't want to have Chicano studies, I hope the dean of the library is present. Uh, be careful, Carlos. <laughs> when we were told we could not have a Chicano studies program at the University of Texas, we, and we were only a handful. We said, okay, uh, we think we're going to visit the law library. We think we're going to go visit the pharmacy library. 
We're going to go over to engineering and visit that library. And we're going to rearrange some books. If you rearrange a book in the library, they can't ever find it. And in those schools, we were not present. So we were not harming ourselves. This is, this is the reference to, if we're not invited to this party, you can't have that party. Because the land that was stolen from us, the royalties that have accrued since then to now, are the subsidy for the tier one research institutions in Texas, University of Texas system beginning with Austin and the Texas A&M system beginning with College Station. Our money from our inheritance goes to subsidize those places that didn't even allow us to go to school at certain times. And then when we were able to go to school, wouldn't let us in in sufficient numbers. Now today, today that same system, that same Texas is talking about seeing the problem and wanting to close the gaps. They've been talking about this for 10 years now and can't close the gaps. There's not a single school that has met their goals. Is it because they're stupid? No. Is it because they don't have resources? No. It is because there's no will to change that. And they know that we don't have enough power to make them change that. But we're coming. We're coming. Now, back then we had values in our movement and our generation. We talked about Chicanismo. Now, in this part of the country, you don't see many nopales. You might see some bamboos, but I know you see sequoias. We're talking about the concept of Chicanismo, from seed to tree. These sequoias that you see here are tall. And the winds come and everything happens and they don't fall down. Because underneath, from that little seed to the time that sapling starts coming up and starts growing and growing and growing, underneath, their roots are all tied together. Los nopales is the same way. These matorral de nopales grows and grows and grows, and they don't fall over. Yet their little base is just like this, because all the roots are intertwined. Chicanismo meant, putting it in the lexicon of some of the young people, that I got your back. We protect each other. We're here for each other. That's why those trees don't fall down, the sequoias. That's why the nopales don't fall over. And that's why their bamboos are skinny as hell, but they go up and up and up, and they don't fall over when the wind comes. We need that network of support. Or as Chicanos would say, yo te hago esquina. Meaning in English, I got your back. This is it. You, you expect people to defend and support you when you're going to be the lead person in a fight and a struggle. And that was Chicanismo. We were all in it together. And like it was reported here about the, uh, the, the pipeline to prison, at the height of the Chicano movement, there was very little gang warfare. At the height of the Chicano movement, the push-out rate was diminished, and the drop-ins began to occur. Kids came back to school because we were pushing not only for a curriculum that was quality, but we wanted Chicano studies as well. We wanted to study about ourselves. Why is it we have to study about everybody else but can't study about ourselves? Why is it we have to learn everybody else and not our own language, except when we call it a foreign language? Why is it that when we were in political parties and we had to vote, we had to vote for the Republicans or for the Democrats? Two parties that are the same thing. Why can't we vote for a party that belongs to us? Why can't we vote for someone that looks like us, talks like us, and speaks to our interests like us? Very simple question. Well, that was Chicanismo. That was what we were trying to do. Uh, one of the things we, we found out was that in talking this way, a lot of people would not understand what we we're looking for. So Gutierrez old rule, number four. When you lose something, you immediately start looking. What, where did I leave it? Where, did I, where is it? And then you find it. When you lose something because somebody stole it, you look even harder and then you figure out who stole it. And then you go see them. 
Our land has been stolen. Our heritage has been stolen. We need to find it and get it back. Now, let me tell you what other things shocked people back in our day. We didn't just say, as Reyes Lopez Tijerina used to, and I think last time he did, about the loss of land from the land grants. All that is true. But what you don't hear about is good President Abraham Lincoln. African-Americans think he's their great hero because of that executive order of emancipation, and they're right on target. But we should not praise that guy because that president, during that Civil War, passed the Homestead Act. Millions and millions of their cultural cousins from Ireland, Poland, Finland, anywhere else, were given our land. And millions and millions and millions of acres of land was given to them free. And those people now tell you they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. <laughs> and they don't believe in welfare or subsidies. And Lincoln didn't stop there. Lincoln pushed for the Transcontinental Railroad. And on that one, they gave sections of land, 640 acres this side, 640 acres that side, and that side. They subsidized the people that were going to build the railroads with land, our land. And it didn't stop there. Let's talk about another president, Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt discovers the beauty of Yellowstone. And rightfully so, he says, you know, I want my grandkids to be able to see this natural wonder. I think I'm going to begin a program to establish national parks. And did. And the states followed suit. And I want to challenge you to open a map on paper, not Google, not Earth Google, <laughs> a, a no paper map, and look and see that west of the Mississippi, two-thirds of the land that they didn't give away to railroad companies and they didn't steal from us to give to settlers is now in federal and state parks. That's our land. So I don't have to tell you where to go find it. It's right there. And it's in your books if you just read it. Those are the individuals who have caused us great harm, structural harm, harm forever. Now, one of the last things that we learned was that we needed our own voice. Back then, we used to refer to people speaking for us as the ventriloquists, wanting to use us as a, as a dummy. We said, we have our own voice. We can speak for ourselves. We can say these things, whether you like it or not. And today, we kind of face this problem again. Now, it's in a different way. We're going to the Cesar Chavez movie. Now, and we are, yes, and Chavez is great. And again, remember, <laughs> being pro-Chicano doesn't make me anti-Latino or anything else. Okay? None of the major actors or director are Chicanos. Banderas plays Pancho Villa. Uh, Lou Philip Diamond played Richie Valens. Don't we have any Chicanos or Chicanas that can play these roles? We see them in, in the nuestras películas that you saw, the novelas. More importantly, don't we ever get an opportunity to show that we can do this? We have no talent? Or is someone else interpreting and speaking for us still yet? Now, these things make people uncomfortable because we're not supposed to say these things, but I'm telling you that this is a problem. We need to speak for ourselves. We need to talk about what is of our interest. Now, the last thing I want to mention, because I'm, I'm almost out of time. No, I got part two later in San Antonio, but for now, I'm going to, I'm going to stop here. Ah, you, you, you want it, you want it, you want it. <laughs> All right, geography. Geography. You know, we realize that the border is moving. We know that we knew then that we were critical mass already. You, you heard the statistics. In the hometown back in 1969-70, who we were doing that walkout, we could count. We knew that we had enough Mexicans that if we got them registered to vote, we could outvote the opposition. And we did. Not just in Cristal. In, 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 in 15 races, we won, and, and we lost just one. And we ultimately ended up having influence in 26 counties. Last week, there was a primary in Texas. 
Wendy Davis is the darling of the Democrats. She's running for governor, a fine outstanding state senator, a good speaker, a good presenter, and good representative of women. Ray Madrigal, Chicano, ex Unida, ran also for the Democratic Party. Of course, he was asked, why are you running against Wendy Davis? Which is what we were asked when we formed the Rastonida Party. Why are you against the Democrats? We're for ourselves. So Ray Madrigal said, I'm not running against Wendy, I'm running for me. And exactly as if this was a, 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 a flashback, Ray Madrigal carried the same 26 counties last week that we did way back in the 1970s. That is the concentration of Mexicanos. That's the critical mass we have. The border has already moved, okay? Now, the border is not moving like you see in this Hollywood version of A Day Without a Mexican, you know, where the mist comes and all, it just happens. No, this is happening every day. You know the statistics. I don't have to elaborate. The border is moving every day. In 1960, we stopped being a rural community and became, became an urbanized community. By 1980, we had critical mass in many different places, including the metropolitan areas. Now, in the 1980s, we began to realize that we were one-third of the population, that African-Americans were the other third, and whites were another third. They hadn't all completely gone to the suburbs. One-third, one-third, one-third. Now, in order to win, when you don't have enough numbers, you've got to form coalitions. So who should we form a coalition with? Should we hook up with the Anglos against the blacks? Should we hook up with the blacks against the Anglos? Or should we just remain bien chicanotes and let the blacks and the whites continue working together against us? Hard choices. Now, if we wait long enough, and this has always been the problem since 1970 to now, about single-member districts. Do we challenge those at-large systems where we lose, or do we just wait out for another 10, 15 years where we can win it all? Sometimes the Maldef people and the Southwest voter people say, no, go for the single-member districts. Get a district now. Well, in those places, it has become institutionalized that that is the only Chicano seat you get. So the tsunami is coming. The border is moving. The problem is, and I'll, and I'll close with this, the problem is we don't have a plan. It's sad. It's really sad. We had a plan back then. We had a focus. We knew what we were doing. We implemented that plan. We didn't let other people define us or dissuade us. We don't have that now. As of May 15, 1977, the Office of Management and Budget, like they had done one time before, prior to 1940, they would look at us and say, we don't know what those Mongols are. You know, they don't look white, they don't look black, they don't look Indian, well, some of them do, and not. we can't tell what the hell they are, so let's just classify them as other race. And that's what we were until 1940, and then magic happened. The Easter Bunny came and said, make them white. So we were sprinkled with holy water and we became white. And we've been white since 1940. Problem number one, when you have 800 years of Muslim rule <laughs> in Spain, and then they come over and impose 500 years of conquista on our indigenous great, 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 great grandmothers, and we're born, who's white? <laughs> Give me a break. But in 1977, on top of this white business, they said now that there were only four races in the United States, white, black, red, and yellow, but for Hispanics. Look it up. Hispanics, we are now the only ethnic group left in the United States. There's either Hispanics or non-Hispanics. Now, some of, some of you, including uh, the, the founders of this project, Say, no, I'm not Hispanic, I'm Latino. <laughs> well, Mr. Murillo, with all due respects, trading Carlos Quinto for Napoleon III is no change. <laughs> it's still another European colonizer. We're neither Hispanic nor Latinos. We're rot gut Mexicans. That's what we are. And in 1960, 
1960, it was very clear. It was very clear. In 1960, we started paying Cubans to come. We fast-tracked them to citizenship. We validated their credentials. Puerto Ricans have been citizens since 1917. And at that time, there was a handful of Puerto Ricans in New York, New Jersey, around there. Another handful of Cubans in Florida who were tobacco factory owners. That was it. But they started coming. And then in 1980, we got our Central American cousins to come. They came under temporary protected status. Now listen carefully again. Right now, the clamor is immigration reform, now. And our Democrats are following and being the cheerleaders, encouraging us to do it now. This is the best we can do. That is the most draconian law that the Senate has passed, and they're asking the House to approve. And you tell me how we can have solidarity when we have to choose between four races, claim to be Hispanic, and are divided from within and without as an example immigration reform. The Cuban is paid to come. The Puerto Rican is a citizen from birth. The Central Americans here on protected status, they're in limbo if you're a Catholic. They're not in purgatory, they're not in hell, they're in limbo. And the Mexicans get hunted. How are you gonna put us in a room and expect us to agree? We do not have a shared history. We have shared colonizers. We do not have the same interests. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't work together. That doesn't mean we shouldn't form a coalition of all these different peoples and all different groups. There are cultural cousins. We have more in common with them than we do with African-Americans or, or Anglo-Americans. But we do have separate issues, beginning with our dismemberment of our homeland. This is our homeland. None of these other immigrants have that same scenario. None of these other immigrants have such a draconian immigration policy aimed at them. None of them get deported because of being or not being the historic enemy that we have been. And we have been the historic enemy. Now, the tsunami is coming. But do we have a plan? Do we have a plan? Perhaps we should drop the, the words Latino advocacy, education, no, whatever, and stick with just the acronym, because that's a beautiful one. Why don't we plan on leading? Why don't we plan? If we got the numbers and it's coming, that's the future. You know, for example, right now it's 510. The future is at 511. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen at 530. Tomorrow is another day. That's the future. We are living in the future. We are our own future. And if what's at stake are fundamental questions such as, you want to continue being governed? Or you want to try being governors? You want to control your self-determination? You want to speak for yourself? You want to reclaim and redo all the past wrongs? You got to have power. Let's have plans. Let's have a plan. I propose, since you're coming to Texas, that we work together from now on in joining the powers that we have in California and Texas, because we're still the majority in the Southwest, and California and Texas have the majority of the political power why don't we start working together and getting prepared to govern? Thank you. Questions? Questions from the, the center. If people want to ask questions, there's a mic in the in the center there. You can get in line behind the mic to ask a question. Questions? Questions? There's one over here. Yo soy Tejana también. Uh, and I'm fifth generation. So how can I fight for my land? I know that my grandfather, my great-grandfather, was born in Uvalde, Texas, but I have no idea how to fight. All right, the, there's three answers to that. The first one is there are associations 
uh, of land grant claimants. I don't know, if, you know, you said you're from Uvalde. I don't know if you were part of a family that has inheritance and so on. So there are associations that are looking, uh, and there has been litigation, some successful. For example, in, in South Padre Island, uh, the land was, was lost, okay? The, the courts decided that it was too late. But in those land grants, in those transfer lands, there was no discussion ever. It wasn't even conceivable of oil and gas. So the Bailly family, and you can look, look it up, B-A-L-L-I dot org. They got a website, and you can keep track of, of that litigation. They got awarded the oil and gas rights. Okay? Uh, so, so that's one answer. The second answer is uh, move back to Uvalde and take over the county, and then you set the taxes, and you set the rules, and you get the sheriff. You know? uh, when I was county judge, we had an Anglo grower who liked to hire Mexicans, and a payday gave him a bogus check. The consul from Mexico came to see me and said, you know, we got all these checks. This, this is thousands and thousands of dollars. So the sheriff went, the Chicano sheriff, the one that cooked chorizo in the courthouse. <laughs> uh, he went and brought him, and we told the, the grower, the farmer, he said, we're going to charge you individually for each one of these things. So you're going to be in the county jail here for the next 30 years <laughs> unless you pay tomorrow. He said, well, I want to go to the bank. No, you can call the bank. Let them bring the cash. You're still in jail. So if you have the power in the county government, and that's where your land was, you can go back and, and right that wrong there. Third, you know, you can do what Tijerina suggests we do. You know, we start talking about this and start clamoring about this and maybe go do a citizen's arrest. Uh, that is part of the Second Amendment as well. Uh, so there are things you can do. We had time for one more. Eric, do we yeah. have a question from Aaron? Yes, go ahead. I don't hear anything. I can't Hello? see. Hello? Ah. Uh, as a brown beret and a Chicano activist here in San Bernardino, uh, I was, and having you, a historian, somebody who was there in the Chicano movement when I, you were my age, you were our age, there's still some Chicanos around here, some activists that were, that were once your age. What kind of words of wisdom would you give to us? That's, that's what we're looking for, especially from the older cats, you know, especially people who have been there in the 60s. Okay. Well, what, it, what words would you give us? Okay. Uh, my wife here is filming me. La colorada está aquí, pero es colorada. And she hates, she hates when I talk like this. Pero es española, me entiende todo, yo entiende todo. So she's going to hate me for saying this. But look, it's very simple. The question is, you know, what, what, what can we do? I really can't tell you exactly because you didn't pose a, a concrete example like she did. Oh, yeah. But you know you're going to die. <laughs> every, every, one of you, every one of you is going to die. What do you want people to say about you when you were alive? What did you do to better your community? What's going to be on your obituary when you were born and when you died and how many kids you left? So the answer is there. Let's work backwards. How do you want to be known for what legacy you're going to leave? Choose up what it is you're going to do. But your job is, as somebody else already said this before, our job, I think, as human beings is to better, make a better world. I, in another publication, answering it to you another way, you know, uh, it, it's in the, the Chicano manual on how to handle gringos. Okay? The, the earlier one that you have, and incidentally, I gave a... a Dr. Murillo, some, some copies to, to use as any way he wants to of the original Gringo Manual, which was about powerlessness. But the Chicano Manual is about a semblance of power. And in that first one essay, in the first chapter, it says there's three fundamental questions you need to answer. Number one, how does the world work? Now, world is contextual because at the beginning, it's your family, your neighborhood, your school, your town. You know, I bet you there's kids in San Bernardino who've never been to L.A. There's kids in L.A. who've never been outside of East L.A. So you, you got to learn how the world works. And then those of you uh, smart people, como dice la racita, going to college. You're answering the second question. How do you make the world work for you? Most of our folks, middle class, are there. They're happy. They're comfortable Hispanics. I belong to an organization called Tachi. 40-year history, my wife and I just finished writing that book last December. Uh, Dr. Bonillo's got a copy of that. You can Google it. Tache, Texas Association of Chicanos and Higher Ed. Some of the critics, and I'm beginning to think this way too, 
I think we ought to change our name. The Texas Association of Comfortable Hispanics <laughs> in Education. <laughs> because we were, we're just, we figured out how to make the world work for us and stop there. But there's a third question alluding to the obituary, the reference that you're going to die. The third and most important question facing all of us is, how do we make a better world? Next question. One more question. Um, just to let you know, Salvador Resendiz from the uh, Hispanic Inland Empire Chamber of Commerce. We are organizing, and I'm, uh, I was born in Mexico, Torreón, Coahuila. When you mentioned Torreón, it was, I was left. Anyway, we were organizing as the Chambers of Commerce, and some of the Hispanic Chambers of Commerce uh, have PACs, but we also at the state level. So we have the uh, California Hispanic Chambers of Commerce, we have the MAC, and within the uh, uh, Chambers of Commerce nationwide, California and Texas are the strongest. And now we're organizing, we just need a plan that you have, okay? Uh, I'm pretty sure that our chamber, okay, can be heard or listen to the plan that you have so we can tell the community and get organized. Because we have now the power of money because of the businesses, education, and that's why we're looking for the uh, young ones, and also a goal that we want for our future. Thank you. All right, here, here's a challenge for you, since that wasn't a question. Uh, you're right. We are the fastest growing uh, economic engine for the United States. Uh, we are also are the largest uh, small business producers uh, in the country. And of those small business producers, they're mostly females. Now, there are taquerias, panaderias, tortillerias. Uh, uh, cantinas, Villares. I just saw. I just saw one. It's got the biggest kick. It says Pancho Villares. <laughs> I thought that was cute. But here's a challenge that I offer you because you're right. Uh, you know, we, we've got some growing economic power. Why don't we start thinking about? Since there's no regulation whatsoever, forming uh, an electronic bank, an e-bank, uh, or just simply uh, a, a bank that will finance us to acquire all the franchises. I said all of them, not some of them, all of them. This is critical thinking, this is planning for the future, not just that we got a pact. I'm, I'm not trying to put you down, you know, because we're not, we don't have enough candidates for office. Who are you giving the money to? And then, you know, we, 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 we don't hold our politicians accountable because we don't elect them with money. They just want our votes to be validated, but we, they're really not accountable to us. They do what they want. Look at the Democrats, they're pushing for immigration reform. That's crazy. Read the damn thing. It's horrible. Yes? Yeah? Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> to be continued. To be continued. <laughs> hey, don't go too far. Don't go too far. Stand right here. Dr. Gutierrez. Venga, venga, sir. Dr. Gutierrez, for your commitment to education, your advocacy, activism, your scholarship, they embody the ideals that really drawn from your legacy led to the creation of this summit. So um, we, we are very honored that you came here in person. Um, I myself, in a lot of ways, have modeled myself after this gentleman here, so I'm very humbled. We want to uh, award you our medallion of honor. Gracias. <laughs> Uh, I, I feel like I've been knighted. Uh. <laughs> I'm a, a son of lead. There you go. We're, we're your sons. Next, I want to invite Armando Cepeda. Armando is our artist in residence, and we want to present you with a special gift. Thank you. Jose Angel Gutierrez, it's uh, my pleasure to present you with this poster that I was uh, commissioned to do for you. And this is a poster of Jose Gutierrez right there. And I want to thank you. There's two versions of the poster. Okay, you want to see that? Let's, let's take a poll. Okay, okay, there's a poll, there's two All right. versions. <laughs> I know you can't see this far, but this one has that picture and says, Last one the party, and my name, and at the bottom says, A Chicano legend. This one 
It's got Razonidas, same puzzle in my name, at the very bottom of the metal chingon. The only reason I'm the metal chingon is the only one left alive. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, but he's not very much uh, yeah, in, in, the, in the public arena still. Yeah. Well, thank you. Th thank you very, very much. We have a limited supply of these, only 40 in that table back there, if anybody's interested in them, okay? Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Give them the plastic. Okay. Let me sign off and then we'll do group pictures. Let me sign off and we'll do group pictures. Okay. We need to sign off and then we'll take our pictures. Okay. So, friends and colleagues, we're signing off now. We're going to send it over to our folks. Again, thank you to our sponsors, partners, town hall events, planners, speakers, Translators, exhibitors, all the folks. Creative Media Services, latinograduate.net, our food services, hospitality. The on-demand viewing will be available in a few hours. So you can watch this online in a few hours from now. Okay. Thank you again to our uh, padrino, uh, Julian Nava. Thank you to each and every one of you for, for spending the day with us. And uh, we hope, gracias. We hope to have added yet another grain of sand. Un granito más de arena. Muchas gracias. Y con eso nos despedimos. Colorín Colorado, este cuento se ha acabado. Gracias. <laughs>